54. He just got a pay deduction, you know what I mean? You're not getting paid this week, no. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Happy Father's Day to all of our dads. And uh, with it being Father's Day and all, we decided that we wanted to do something really, really special. And I've noticed that um, many of our dads have quite a physical prowess uh, to them. And so we called a couple of fitness experts, uh, Billy Blanks and the guy who did P90X, uh, to come and to kind of give you a little workout this morning. Um, However, they weren't able to make it. Something with the contract didn't work quite right. Um, but Mikey and uh, Derek decided that they could kind of do their own spiritual, physical workout for you guys. And so uh, they worked on it this week. I think they're just as good. And um, it's getting ready for Zumba, which is next week. And so uh, in your program, if you'll pull this out for a second, it's in your program. It says Zumba on the top. And next Sunday after church... We'll have a a small little lunch, and then um, you can actually go ahead and be a part of Zumba. And so it's free, and you can invite any family or friends or neighbors. Zumba's really big. I'm going to be here. Um, Mikey and Derek are going to be here. And uh, just for our dads, we have some workout advice for you um, as you get better as dads. Let's look at the side screen. Welcome. Welcome to Heavenly Bodies with Mikey and Derek. We're going to give you the ultimate temple workout that is 70 times 7 better than any pagan workout that you've ever done. Alright, we're going to do we're going to do the prayer walk. We're just walking in place. Just walking, just walking in place. We're gonna do it. We're gonna do our prayer squats, okay? So we're gonna do we're gonna do five of these, okay? Ready? One, two, three. No, we're gonna do these on three, okay? So on my count, one, two, three. No. Um. Okay. Okay. Now we're gonna do a way into major transportation. So Emily, you just stand there. Emily is merely a woman. We're gonna do we're gonna do ten trunk rotations. Wait a minute, ten of them. Ten of them. Yeah. And this leg is heavy. We're gonna we're gonna fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. And as you see, Mikey's doing more than fighting a good fight. Whoa, whoa, is that what you're wearing? I just sinned. I sinned. I can't believe Emily, Second Timothy, two niner. The next one. Oh, we got, uh, we got the key is in a tree. Yes, the tree. Yeah. So, the tree pose. This is the tree pose. The key is so. This is the tree pose. Watch out. The tree pose. Ah! Ah! The key is in a tree. Alright, let's see. Let's see now. You really want to squat down on this. You want to do it with both your hands and your legs. You want to do that. That's exactly what he did. I didn't see you standing there. I was just working out with my cross here. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this workout today, Heavenly Bodies with Mikey and Derek. You're probably expecting some video about Zumba, 
but Zumba's a girly workout. And this year, workout's for men. So, I mean, Zumba will be next week. You, you'll probably see Chris doing it because he can't handle a workout like this. So, see you later. WWJD, brother! You know, I leave the office for my birthday, and that's what I come back to. So, Well, hey, we really do want to encourage you guys to come back uh, next Sunday for Zumba. Uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun. It'll be a great way. Those two will not be leading that workout. Uh, we have two Zumba instructors who are qualified to do that, and so it'll be a great way to kind of get spiritually fit and then physically fit uh, all at once. You know, I was thinking about it that uh, many of our dads are physically fit. But I think what I'm most proud of is uh, many of our dads who are either working towards or they are spiritually fit. They give of their time and their energy to connect with their kids, to help them to grow uh, like Christ. And uh, many of our dads who are here uh, are engaged with their kids and they're spiritually intentional about being able to make sure that their children are here at church on Sunday and they're engaged uh, in praying with them, doing devotions with them. We've got a lot of great single dads uh, who are here who kind of take that role on. Many uh, granddads who are doing that as well. And I was just thinking, we just have some remarkable uh, dads uh, here at the JAR. And... Um, if you're a dad or a soon-to-be dad, some of you are soon-to-be dads, um, we're going to invite you to stand up here in just a second. And uh, ladies, I want you to hoot and holler like when you watch Glee, okay? And uh, that you'd be really excited uh, and to uh, celebrate our dads. So dads, uh, if you'd stand up uh, right now. And uh, ladies, if you can go ahead and let's give them a hand. And if you guys can just keep standing, keep standing there for a second. They don't follow instructions as well as the ladies did at Mother's Day. But um, I just would like to pray for you guys uh, and your role as dads. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that uh, you model for us what it means to be a uh, remarkable father. Thank you for the fact that you always love us, you always care for us. You never walk away. You never leave us. I thank you, God, for the dads who are here this morning, who more and more each day, they want to become like you. Give them your wisdom and your strength, God, and the high call that you've given them to be a father to their kids. Father, each dad who's standing here, they're at different stages, I know, of, of parenting. Some of them are just beginning their journey. Some of them um, have sons and daughters who are uh, adults and who have their own kids now. And some of these dads, God, there's a lot of stress uh, in their home right now. 
I just pray that you would give them your peace on their special day. Help them to have more patience and understanding in the home that you've called them to lead. And whether it's changing a diaper or running kids to an event or having to be the disciplinarian at some point, give them the strength to be the first one to stand up in their household and to be the godly man that you've called them to be. God, some of these dads just need to know today that you are protecting their kids no matter where they're at. Some of these dads, God, might be estranged for their kids. They don't talk to their kids very much. There's been something that has created some issue. And I just pray, God, that you would be with their kids, that they would be drawn back to their fathers. God, some uh, dads standing here right now, um, they think they've made a lot of mistakes along the way. And I just pray right now that you would remind them of your forgiveness that is for them. Challenge them today, God, if they've made some mistakes with their kids, to be the first one to pick up the phone and to call, to ask for forgiveness, to do the courageous thing. God, there are dads who, who are here this morning who've lost their kids. And Father's Day is a very hard day for them. And so, God, I pray that you would come alongside them and you would let them know that, that you love them that you are the God of life, that you give the promise of resurrection and that this is not all that there is. And so, God, whether the dads who are standing are just expecting, who just had a, a new child born, who have preschoolers or high schoolers or adult kids, God, give them your divine wisdom, I pray right now, to be the dad that you've called them to be. Thank you, God, for these men. I pray that you would bless them incredibly. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's give our dads one more hand. You know, I think one of the saddest things to watch in the world is when something as strong and useful and dynamic, and then it kind of goes down a road of decay. I think of companies like uh, General Motors and Ford. That at one time, that was the only automakers that we had and the only ones that we ever thought of. They were filled with purpose and mission and focus and dreams of the future. They were the only names that you even thought of when buying a car. And just a few short years ago, the government had to step in and we had to pay our own tax dollars in to save both of them from falling into bankruptcy. And plants were closed and people lost their jobs and it was a very painful thing to watch. Recently, I went back to uh, the house uh, that I was raised in, in Anderson. And when we moved into that house, 
The house was just a beautiful home. And the yard was kept up extremely well, and the landscaping was tremendous, and uh, you could uh, just see that the neighborhood was just a wonderful place, a great place to raise kids. I'm so glad I was raised there. And now I went back uh, just a few months ago, and uh, the house was run down. And there were more weeds uh, in the yard than there was grass. And the neighborhood was filled with for sale signs and rent signs and abandoned homes. And it was just kind of a, a shell of itself. I look at the Indianapolis Colts. That franchise that was so dynamic and had a dynasty and won more games in a decade than any other NFL team had ever done before. In its day, it was glorious. It was beautiful. It was Peyton to Marvin, and you had the edge, and you had all of this. And now, it's a very different Indianapolis Colts team. I'm 41 years old as of yesterday. Sometimes I look into the mirror at my body, and I go, Ugh! I mean, in its day, folks, I'm not sure it ever had its day. You know, I'm kind of, I'm still kind of waiting for that day, but, you know, it might not come. But I, I think you kind of get what I'm, what I'm saying. I mean, it's a, a very painful thing to watch something decay. Something that you remember what it once was, or, or maybe even more painful, what you had hoped it to be, and it just never became. And you know, out of all the forms of decay that are in the world, I think the most painful and the saddest one to watch is the, the form of the decay of the human spirit. The decay of the human spirit. I think about looking at people who at one time ran a race really well, and then all of a sudden they just kind of drift away from God, and their character starts to sink. And once in their life in which they were full and fresh and full of uh, a life, that now all of a sudden their life just is sour. I think you used to watch maybe that individual and you thought, oh man, I remember what that person was like. And now you think about it and you think, oh, they're just not the same or what they would have become. And it's one of the saddest things, I think, in our world to watch when the human spirit of a person falls into decay. And it happens to fathers. It happens to dads. In fact, I think in cultures or societies in which you begin to see spiritual decay with fathers or dads, all of a sudden you'll see societal decay come right after it because it's such an important position, guys. I can't tell you enough how important it is for you to be the spiritual leader of your home. It doesn't mean that you make everyone else a doormat and you have this hard rule, but you say in the spiritual world, at least, I'm going to lead in my home. And David, the guy who we've learned to know and love over these last couple of weeks, he had a front row seat 
of what spiritual decay looked like in his predecessor, a guy by the name of Saul. Saul was an impressive man. The Scripture tells us that uh, he was head and shoulders above every other person. There was no one in Israel like him. He was smart. He was kind. He was loving. He was giving. He was generous. He had a humble spirit. He was strong. He was considered the greatest warrior of all. He loved God. And his future looked so bright. At the age of 30, he became the king of Israel. And he reigned for 42 years. But when he died, the promise that God had placed into his life was wasted. And he was lost. At the end of his life, he's tormented by depression. He's filled with a jealous spirit towards David and everyone else. He was incapable of love or joy or peace. He was just kind of a shell of himself. Now, I'm sure Saul didn't plan at the age of 30 that he'd start drifting away from God. He didn't plan on drifting away from his family. He didn't plan on drifting away from the people that he had been called to lead. But over time, it just kind of happened. And he drifted away from God and he drifted into evil. Now, why does this kind of thing happen? Well, I think it happened to Saul because he refused to do the courageous thing. And the courageous thing for him was to look in the mirror and to name and face the brokenness that was in his life. Because the truth is this, folks, that every single person in this gym and every single human being that I've ever met has one thing in common. And the one thing that they all wrestle with, including dads, is a deep brokenness. That's what we all struggle with, no matter who we are or where we came from or how much money we make or where we live, we all struggle with a sense of deep brokenness. Several uh, years ago, I read a uh, women's magazine article that had a big theological flaw to it. Now, hey guys, this is Father's Day. I don't like buy women's magazines all the time, okay? It's just one of those things that I kind of saw that Jen had, and I uh, kind of opened it up and looked at it. And it was a story of an obsessive love, and the title just kind of caught my eye. And this was the title. Totally normal women who stalk their ex-boyfriends. Totally normal women who stalk their ex-boyfriends. And the phrase that kind of hit me was that phrase, totally normal women. And I just kind of wondered myself, have I ever met one of them before, you know? I just don't know. And you know, it's kind of reassuring though, isn't it? It's a reassuring phrase for us to receive that we are totally normal. Totally normal. It's kind of a nice thing to know, isn't it? That you are totally normal. It's very comforting to know that you're totally normal, but there are some real wackos, you know, outside that are strange people. But you and I, we are totally normal. I mean, we have a healthy sense of ourselves. We are in control. 
So we can laugh at people and we can be shocked at when people do things. And we can go, oh, those people, they're just not totally normal. But I and you, we are totally normal people. We just don't struggle with the same things. <laughs> oh, it's funny, isn't it? Because if you got any single person here alone in a room by themselves and you went through every single area of their life, Pretty soon, folks, you would see brokenness after brokenness after brokenness. Jennifer and I were uh, driving back from Cincinnati yesterday. We had been with her family. And all of a sudden, there was just an issue that we had been talking about and thinking about. And all of a sudden, you could just see the brokenness that Jennifer had experienced. Something that had happened way before in her life. And it just came out. And we were just like, whoa, it's there. Some habit you can't overcome, some hang-up you can't get through, some hurt that is so painful that you just haven't been able to let go. And although we try to mask them, and although we try to avoid them, the reality is, folks, every single one of us have some deep hurts. I was thinking about it this week. Earlier this week, there there was one I was struggling with. And I just kind of left and I went off to a place where I hang out with God. And I just kind of talked with him one-on-one to kind of get through that peace. And this is just true, folks, that no one is totally normal. There is no such thing. Not at least according to the way that God initially had designed us to be. And why is that? Because the Bible says this. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For how many? All. All of us. You know, the difference between David and Saul is that David had the courage and the faith to face his brokenness. Saul didn't have that, but David did. And they both were broken men, but one of them decided to drift towards God in the midst of his brokenness, and the other one decided to drift away from God in his brokenness. Now, for the rest of our time, what I simply want to look at are three stages of spiritual decay that Saul experienced and that we might drift into as well because this is what I'm hoping today, especially for our guys, for men who are here, is that if we can understand what a man named Saul, who was a great, impressive man, if we can learn out what... um, kind of allowed him to fall into spiritual decay, then maybe we can learn from that and we ourselves will fight with everything that we have as followers of Christ and especially for our fathers today that we don't go down that road. So here's the first stage that Saul falls into, that he drifts into, and it's this. He simply tolerated settled disobedience. The first stage of spiritual decay is that you simply tolerate subtle disobedience. Now, the reason that he could live with this is the fact that it was subtle. I mean, it was just small. It was slight. It was just a a few little tiny acts of disobedience. Not a ton of them. And there are kind of two examples that we find in Saul's life in which this takes place. The first one's in uh, 1 Samuel 13. And here's the context. 
Saul is kind of new to this whole new uh, concept of being king. And he's reigning as king, and Israel is fighting this group called the Philistines, which last week we learned that they had a big giant, a guy by the name of Goliath. And Samuel, who was a great prophet, he was kind of like Billy Graham, he comes to Saul and he gives Saul some instructions. Samuel says, Saul, I want you to listen carefully here for a second. I want you to go down to this place called uh, Gilgon. I want you to simply wait there for seven days. And I'll come and I'll make the sacrifice and I'll instruct you to do what God tells you to do. Your job is to wait. Do you got that, Saul? I got it. Now, are you supposed to go anywhere? No. What's your job? To wait. How long are you to wait? Seven days. But look at what happens. The Scripture says this. Saul waited seven days because Samuel had said he would meet him then. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the soldiers began to leave. So Saul said, bring me the whole burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. Then Saul offered the whole burnt offering. Just as he had finished, Samuel arrived, and Saul went to greet him. Samuel asked, what have you done? Now it's the seventh day, and Samuel hasn't arrived yet. And Saul thinks that he's not going to come at all. And then things kind of get rocky. Think about this. All of a sudden, you know, Samuel's not there, and everyone in the army starts to walk away. And the morale is really, really low, and the battle's not going so great. And so often in the case with Saul, he turns to his fear, and he lets it get a hold of him, and he leads himself to do a very foolish and stupid thing. Saul only had one thing that he had to do. He said, God wants you to simply wait until I come in seven days. That's it. All he had to do was wait. But he didn't do that. He disobeys God, and he offers the sacrifice himself. Now, for many of you, you're like, well, what's the big deal? Well, in that time, only the priest or a prophet could offer a sacrifice to God. No one else could. In fact, at one point... Uh, you know, people died when they would try to take on that role. And so Saul just had this one thing, this, this one thing he had to do. And he gets anxious and he doesn't do it and the troops start leaving. But instead of taking his anxiety to the Lord and saying, God, I'm really anxious, all the troops are leaving right now. Instead of doing that, he allows fear to kind of come in and he becomes impatient and he disobeys God. And he does the sacrifice himself. And then just as he's done this sacrifice, Samuel kind of walks in and he says to Saul, he says, what have you done? I mean, what have you done? You only had to do one thing. Wait. And here Saul makes another mistake. Instead of going face to face with his fear and his anxiety, he becomes disobedient. And then he kind of rationalizes it. He tries to make it a spiritual thing. Look at what he says next. Well, Saul replied, when I saw that my men were scattering from me and you hadn't arrived by the time you said you would, I said the Philistines are ready to march against us and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. 
So I reluctantly offered the burnt offering without waiting for you to arrive. I didn't want to do it, Samuel. But you weren't here on time. I didn't have any other choice, so I just had to do the sacrifice myself. You see, he takes the truth and he distorts it, and then he puts the blame on someone else. Rick Warren always says this. He says, the way you spell blame is be lame. Every time you blame someone, you are being lame. And instead, he should have just acknowledged right then that, you know what, I screwed up. I messed up. I knew I wasn't supposed to do this, but, you know, the guys started leaving. The army was going down, and I just couldn't wait any longer. And Samuel says this, you have acted foolishly. You have disobeyed the command of the Lord. Now, many of us here today would say, well, that's not a big day. It was just a subtle disobedience. It looked like a good thing to do. I wanted to make a sacrifice to God to make sure that, you know, the army would succeed. But God told him to wait. And the real problem was God wasn't, or Saul wasn't really trusting God. He was just trying to, like, get this genie in the bottle thing going to where he would be successful in the war. Here's another example. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Here, Saul is at war with the Amalekites, and Samuel tells him, uh, again, he says, God has told me for you to just do this one command. He says, this enemy that you're fighting, the Amalekites, they're so wicked that you need to destroy everything, even the livestock. You got it, Saul? Got it. What's to be destroyed, Saul? Everything. What is to stay, Saul? Nothing. And Saul wins the battle, but what he opts for is selective obedience. Any of you ever do that before? Surely not. You're all holy, I know. But uh, selective obedience. He destroys everything, but he keeps the best livestock for himself and for his soldiers. And once again, he's disobedient. Now look at the spiritual sounding language that he gives in verse 12. Early the next morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But the people told Samuel, Saul has gone to Carmel, where he has put up a monument in his own honor. Now he has gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel came to Saul, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I have obeyed the Lord's commands. But Samuel said, Then why do I hear cattle mooing and sheep bleeding? Can you imagine that? You're there, and you're trying to cover up something that you messed up. And you knew you were supposed to destroy everything, even the cattle and the sheep. And you're trying to make your excuse when all of a sudden you hear, And, you know, I'm sure at that point Saul's like, Shut them up! Saul answered, Oh, you mean... Those cattle. Well, the soldiers took them from the Amalekites. They saved the best sheep and cattle to offer as sacrifices to our Lord. But we destroyed all the other animals. Again, Saul's just trying to spiritualize his disobedience. Samuel then said to Saul, Stop. Let me tell you what the Lord has said to me last night. 
Saul answered, tell me. Samuel said, it is better to obey than sacrifice. In other words, it's better to have a heart that is open and receptive to the things of God than to do anything else in your life. That that's what God wants more than anything else. He wants your heart to be open to Him at all times. And when it's not open, that you're big enough to go and confess and to get back on it again. It's not about religious duties or activities. It's not about sacrifices. You know, the easiest thing for me to do at this stage in my life is to financially give. Giving money for me is not a hard thing. The reality is, folks, it's not a hard thing for many of you either. You know what the hard thing to do? is each day that you wake up and you sacrifice and you surrender yourself to God, that He would be the one who would be in control of your day that entire day. That's the hardest thing to do. And to obey Him then in all the steps. It's not about going to church every Sunday. It's not about being a part of a small group. All those things are important. It's commanded in Scripture that we do those things. But to do them... And to not do them with a spiritual heart when you're withholding your heart from God in some area of your life. It's just plain foolishness. Folks, whenever you do something that looks and sounds spiritual, but to withhold from God the most tender parts of your life and your heart is not to trust Him. And that's what Saul does. He's doing all these great things for God, but there is a piece of his heart that he has not given fully to him. And I just want to ask you this morning, what about you? Is there some subtle disobedience in your heart withholding you from God? Is there some nursing resentment or bitterness that you have? Are you masking anger or hatred towards someone? Or is the truth for you right now, maybe you don't have those things, but you've just become kind of prayerless lately. You just don't spend much time in prayer, and you try to make the excuse that, you know what, you know, I just am too busy. Folks, I want to challenge you this morning that if there is an area of subtle disobedience in your life, don't let it go unchecked. If there's a sin, just name it, repent of it, and go on. Because Saul doesn't do that, folks. And then he just allows himself down a road of spiritual decay. And dads, on your special day especially, if there's some spiritual act of disobedience that's just subtle, but it's there, then confess it so that you can be the spiritual leader of your home that God's called you to be. Turn to God. Come clean. Have a fresh start on this Father's Day 2012. Here's the second thing that Saul does on this road to spiritual decay. Saul learns to tolerate poisoned relationships. He tolerates poisoned relationships. Now maybe there was no relationship in uh, Saul's life that was more dynamic than his relationship with David. Because David was the one who would follow him as king. And as Saul is going further and further down this road of spiritual decay, David is going further and further up into this relationship and growing closer and closer to God. 
And God is blessing David in some amazing ways. Now, last week we learned about that big uh, story uh, about that big man named Goliath and this little teenager named David who comes with five smooth stones and he takes him out. And after that story, David's fame begins to grow and people are just flocking towards him. They're extremely fond. In fact, even Jonathan, Saul's own son, his own flesh and blood, turns towards him, David, rather than his own dad. And in chapter 18, there's one word that keeps cropping up that describes how people feel about David. And let's just uh, look at three verses, and I want you to try to see if you can pick out the word that is cropping up. Here's the first verse. In verse 1, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan, Saul's son, became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Look at verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. And then look at verse 20 on the back there. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David. Now what's the word that keeps cropping up in those three verses? Love. Love. David is just filled with love. It's like everybody loves David. There was just something about him, about his personality, about his charisma, about his faithfulness that endured people that he was drawn, uh, that they were drawn to him. And Saul, the king, is watching everyone walk away from him and to David. Then there's another word that comes up in three other verses in this chapter. Let's see if we can get it. It deals with his professional career. Here's the first verse. See if you can pick out the word in these verses. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. Then look at verse 15. When Saul saw how successful he was, that is David, he was afraid of him. Verse 30. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to do battle, as they often did. David met, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well-known. What's the one word that expresses David's career? Success. David is extremely successful. Well, Saul watches him, and Saul even likes David. But Saul sees that all the people are loving on David and that God is blessing him. Look what it says in verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. It upset him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. 
The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it at him, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. At that point, folks, this relationship is poison. I mean, Saul is picking up the spear and he's throwing it at David. And you know, there's an amazing word that is shown in Scripture over and over again when it comes to relationships that go poisonous. And the prominent word is the word envy. I mean, you go back to the beginning of the Bible, Cain kills Abel out of what? Envy. Jacob hates and he envies Esau and he steals his birthright. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery because of envy. Leah was envious of Rachel because she had lovely eyes. Miriam and Aaron were envious of their prominent uh, brother Moses because of envy. In Matthew 27, this is what is said in dealing with Jesus. It says, For Pilate knew very well that the Jewish leaders had arrested Jesus out of what? What's it say? Envy. Because of his popularity with the people. Paul, the closest follower of Jesus, says in his letter to the church at Philippi, it is true that some preach Christ out of what? That means people who even stand on stages, whether big or small, sometimes it's all about envy for them. All through Scripture, envy is a toxic force, and it's universal. How many of you, by a show of hands, have more than one sibling in your world? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you have more than one kid? Raise your hand. Okay. Now, this is what I've learned. That when you have more than one child in a family unit, there is a little phrase that comes, and that phrase is called sibling rivalry. Maybe you've heard of it before. There's a book that uh, I read recent, or this week actually, uh, parts of it, called Siblings Without Rivalry. And one dad tells of a story of one summer in which he was taking out the freezer in the garage and he was going to defrost it because it hadn't been defrosted for two years. And he tells this ludicrous story of envy. This is what he says. My three kids were in bathing suits. I playfully tossed a big slab of ice in the direction of one of my kids and said, here, have some ice. Immediately, the other two chimed in and said, I want some. So I grabbed two more big slabs of ice and I slid them towards the two of them. Then the youngest one yelled, they have more than me. I said, do you want more? Here's more. And I flung a big thing of ice towards the youngest one. Then the other two yelled, now he has more. After two more big pots of ice were thrown in their direction, the first one cried out, now they have more. By this time, the three children are ankle deep in ice and they're still yelping for more. As fast as I could fling out these chunks of ice at everybody's feet, I did. 
Even though they were hopping up and down in pain because of the cold, they continued to scream for more in a frenzy of concern that one would gain an advantage over the other one. That was when I realized how futile it was to ever try to make things equal. The children could never get enough as a father, and as a father, I could never give enough. And here are these crazy little kids, and they're asking for something that is going to cause them pain. Of course, little stupid kids are the only ones that do that, right? Here's the song. Saul has slain thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And when Saul hears that, he becomes envious that they're singing that David has killed more than he has. He's ticked off in his spirit, and his heart begins to become squeezed. Friends, I'll tell you, the one thing that God cannot do himself, and the one thing that God cannot do is this. He cannot satisfy an envious heart. He can't do it. You see, Saul sees David, who had done nothing wrong, and the people love him, and Saul's son loves him, and his daughter loves him, and once even Saul loved David. But he sees success after success after success, and envy grips his heart, and he's filled with anger and fear. And he picks up a spear in his envy, and he throws it at the future king. And of course, God says, even if you do that, it will not take away from the purpose that I have for David. And I just want to challenge you this morning. And we did a series on this, but we just don't get it. If you have any toxicity in your life towards another person, don't leave this room today without making a covenant promise to God of saying, I'm going to make it right. If you have something against another person, make it right today. If it's someone in the church, go to them today and make it right. You do whatever you can to make it heal. And dads, today I want to challenge you especially. If there's some issue that you have with one of your kids, make it right today. Model to them what it means to be the first one to forgive. Don't allow envy to control you and to kill you eventually like Saul did. Well, here's the last thing. The last kind of phase of spiritual decay that Saul falls into is that he betrays his own values. He betrays the values that he once had built his entire life on. We read this in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 1. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him, and buried him in the town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and set up a camp at Shonem, while Saul gathered all the Israelites and set up a camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to the attendants, find me a woman who is a medium so I may go and inquire of her. 
There is one in indoor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on another, putting on uh, other clothes. And at night, he and two other men went to the woman, the witch of indoor. Now, initially, Saul is asking God for direction. And he's like, what shall I do? But you need to understand, folks, that he's really not so interested in what God wants him to do. At this point, he's not concerned about God's will for his life because that would involve repentance and having to come clean. What he wants is what is going to make me successful in this battle. He really doesn't care what God wants. He just wants to win. He wants insider information. Any of you remember that old game show that tried to bring it back different times called Let's Make a Deal? And you know on the uh, big prize of the day, they have curtain one, curtain two, curtain three. And Saul just wanted to know which one is the big grand prize behind. How can I be successful? And of course, God is silent. He says, if you're going to have that attitude, I'm not going to answer you. And Saul was not living with the kind of spirit that would enable God to talk to him anyways. Then we kind of see this extent of Saul's decay and deterioration. It all comes down to it. He had just outlined all the witches, all the spiritists, all the mediums. He said, you've got to get out of the country. But when it came to his own success, for him to hold on a little bit longer, he says, let him come back in. And I want to talk to one in particular to find out if I can win this. And in his last act, this defeated man, he can't defeat the other army, and he takes his uh, sword and he falls on it and he dies. And that's the final outcome of spiritual decay, folks, is that you die. I think of a pastor who was a mentor of mine. A great guy, looked up to him big time. And uh, in just a matter of time, he left his wife, he left his kids, he left the church, the church split in half, and he went after a 28-year-old girl when he was 41. And he just wanted more. I think of a woman who I know who has a bitter tongue, who used to say that the church was the most important thing in her life. But she became full of poisoned words. And she couldn't sustain that relationship. And she did damage in the church. And she walked away. And she no longer is giving her life in that way. I think of people who start claiming that they are the follower of Jesus. And they're filled with joy. And then their hearts just can become a little bit dark and cold and sore. I think of people who say, I'm all about grace, and they're filled with grace, and then all of a sudden, something goes wrong in their life, and they become the most judgmental people you've ever seen. And folks, I don't want to end up like that. And I don't want you to end up like that. Fathers, God doesn't want you to fizzle out like Saul did. He doesn't want you to live a life in which you tolerate subtle disobedience, where you tolerate poisoned relationships, where you kind of give into your values and you no longer follow the values that God gave to you. Because the greatest thing that God ever said about David was not all the success that he had, but he said this. He said, the greatest thing is that this is a man after my own heart. 
And I'll tell you, dads, the greatest compliment that your kids will ever give to you in your life is when they can look at you and they can say, my dad, my dad is a man after God's own heart. Everything else you do, all the success you have in your life will not mean a single thing if at the end of your life, on your tombstone, as your kids are there sitting around, standing around, that they can't say, Dad was a man after God's own heart. It's the greatest gift and it's the greatest reward that your kids will ever give to you. Let's stand for closing prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would know how thankful we are that on this Father's Day that we have a Heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us, who gives us second and third and fourth and hundredth and two hundred and thousandth and ten thousandth second chances. That any time that we come to you, God, you are the God of the second chance. You give us more than we could ever imagine. And God, even when we mess up and screw up and we flub up, you never lose heart. You also know the truth about us, God. You know that we are a people of hope and honor. But we're also a very broken people as well. Oh God, help us to humbly bow before you daily, asking for your healing in our life, in our brokenness, so we don't carry that on for days and weeks and months and years. But that each day we receive your forgiveness and we go into that day, God, not filled with spiritual decay, but with spiritual hope for a future. And God, I pray right now, especially for our dads, Help them to do whatever it takes to truly be able to live a life in which one day their kids might be able to say of them, Dad was a man after God's own heart. I pray this in Jesus' name and the people of God's Son. Amen. Have a great week. Know that you're loved in this place. Thanks, guys. If you have anything. Uh, please come on up.